You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to Writer's Cribs, Danielle Evans in conversation with Laura Vandenberg. We're so glad you have joined us tonight. We appreciate the effort it took for you to be with us this evening for this wonderful event where you get to listen in to two short story authors whose celebrated books are two of Library Journal's best story collections of 2020. Tonight you get to eavesdrop as their, as their conversation is sure to take you many places. CityLit is thrilled along with our partner, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, to be able to present literary program to you at a time when our country is wrestling with so much, seemingly with hope on the horizon. My name is Carla Dupre, Executive Director of CityLit Project, a literary nonprofit located in Baltimore, designed to keep you invested and engaged in literature with three signature events, the CityLit Festival, CityLit Stage, and CityLit Studio. Tonight's program will be our last event of 2020 as we look forward to an incredible, incredible new year where City Lit joins three organizations for the inaugural virtual retreat called Scribenti Maternum, a fancy way to say for mothers who write. The retreat takes place every weekend in February. We know mamas are taking a huge hit during this pandemic, working to be all things to all people. And we believe they need a little me time to invest in their craft and to be in a supportive environment with their literary work along with motherhood is championed. Please visit citylitproject.org for more information. For a limited time, partial and full funding is available. Next year also, CityLit joins the Pratt in presenting CityLit Festival Reimagine that entails an offering of special programming throughout March with a day-long event on March 21st. Mark your calendars and stay tuned. As we fall upon the season of giving, please remember CityLit a few dollars go a long way in supporting a nonprofit that supports the growth of a richer, more vibrant literary community. Your donations allow us to pay writers and to curate special events. While this has been a challenging year for many, we hope our programs have inspired you, have widened your literary palette, have made you buy books and follow and support authors. We also hope they've made you dust off that manuscript that's been sitting in your jet store way too long. More than anything, we hope you have gained a wider understanding of humanity because of the authors we have presented to you. I can personally tell you our guest tonight represents some of the best short story authors in the industry today. Their work resonates so loudly on the capacity of humans, how we do life, how we mess up and how we survive. On behalf of CityLit Project, we have so much to be grateful for. And that includes you, our audience, for having faith in us. That includes our longtime partners, Enoch Pratt Library, that includes our presenting authors, Danielle Evans and Laura Vandenberg, whose work will simply dazzle you. And that includes every poet and writer out there who is working during these formidable times to push their poems and their stories into this world. We will always believe there's room for you too. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my dear friend and partner, Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator of Enoch Pratt Free Library, who will introduce tonight's guest. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carla. It's just been really special that we've been able to continue to bring literature to people and creativity to people in different ways throughout the pandemic. And I'm really excited for 2021. 
Um, so I'm glad you're here. And I'm going to mention some of the other upcoming events we have as well. Um, so good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Tracy Diamond, as Carla said. And before we officially start, I just have a couple of reminders, some Zoom logistics, and I will inter uh, introduce Laura and Danielle. Um, we have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, so you can still access physical materials as well as mobile printing at these libraries. Um, this is our last author event of 2020. Um, so rest as you can. Um, and we are going to kick off Writers Live with Alexis Co on January 13th. Um, she's the author of You'll Never Forget Your First. It's a book about George Washington. Um, so uh, another take on history. Um, and we're also hosting Britt Bennett with City Lit Project on February 16th. Um, and Carla will be in conversation with her. So it'll be another excellent night. Um, we have lots of other events going on in the meantime to keep you busy during this um, holiday season from cooking to music. So you can check out additional details um, on prattlibrary.org. So some of those Zoom logistics, um, if you're watching in Zoom, um, please click on the chat bubble um, on the bottom of your screen to post questions for our speakers. And if you're watching on Facebook, um, please post your questions in the comments. Um, uh, we will be monitoring both. So wherever you post your questions, um, we will get to as many as we can. Um, I'll also post a survey near the end of the program. Your feedback really helps us serve you. So tonight, we are so thrilled to have two wonderful writers who both have new short story collections. Um, in addition to both collections being featured on probably every best of list combined this year, uh, Danielle Evans and Laura Vandenberg both write in ways that make you audibly react to their prose with their cutting wit and their ability to really peel back the layers of humanity. Danielle Evans is the author of the story collection, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, winner of the Pan American Robert W. Bingham Prize, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and the Patterson Prize, and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 selection. Her stories have appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including the best American short stories. She teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University and the Office of Historical Collections, uh, Historical Corrections is her latest collection. Um, Laura Vandenberg is the author of the story collections, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us, The Isle of Youth, and I Hold a Wolf by the Ears, her newest collection, um, which was named a best book of 2020 by Time. She's also the author of the novels Find Me and The Third Hotel. She is the recipient of a Rosenthal Family Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Bard Fiction Prize, a Penn O'Henry Prize, a McDowell, McDowell Colony Fellowship, and is a two-time finalist for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award. Um, born and raised in Florida, Laura splits her time between the Boston area and Central Florida. Um, the Ivy Bookshop is our local bookstore partner for the event. Um, so as they are for many, so even though we're not in the library and you're not walking past their lovely table, I hope you'll uh, still support them by purchasing the author's books directly from the Ivy. Once I'm off screen, I'll post those links in the chat. So please welcome Laura and Danielle. 
Hi, everyone. Um, hi, Danielle. Um, I'm so excited to be talking with you about this amazing book. Um, and I'm also full of admiration for your Christmas tree setup. And also, <laughs> I just want to let you know that, yeah, the cat is sort of looking at the Christmas tree like it is a delicious. <laughs> She's plotting. Prey object that she is about to <laughs> like. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I can keep you apprised if I see movement um, on that on that front. Um, so yeah, thanks for being with us, um, everyone. And I have, yeah, a bunch of questions for Danielle about the Office of Historical Corrections. And I was wondering um, if we might start by talking about the collection as a whole. Um, I know, so we've been lucky enough to do a handful of events this fall. Um, I think this is both our last for, for the year. And um, I'm always sort of awed by the way that you talk about the story collection as a form. Um, and all of the stories in this new book deal in their own way with apology and correction. Um, in an interview, you said that you're interested in this emotional question of apology and what we want in an apology or what it means to try to correct something that in some ways can't be fixed. But I'm also interested in who the narrative of apology belongs to. Um, and as a reader, I could just see all of those kind of like thematic questions coming through so powerfully and in very different ways in these stories. And I just wanted to ask you like, at what stage did this narrative interest in correction and apology emerge as kind of like the thematic center of the book. Um, so, you know, you're like working and you're writing stories individually. And at what point did you see this sort of like larger landscape of concern um, taking shape? Fairly late. I mean, I think especially for things that are thematic questions, it's often a good idea to be the last one at the party, like all of the stories get there before you do. Um, because otherwise I think you can try too hard to kind of push your work in a particular direction or force a story to kind of answer a question in a way that takes the energy out of it. So I was just working on stories for a long time and I kept occasionally making up blanket statements um, about what tied them all together. And then I realized they were wrong in some way. Like at one point I was like, this book is about the present tense. and it wasn't because not everything was in the present tense even then. And then I ended up writing even more that wasn't in the present tense. Um, but that was definitely when I finally sat down and thought, okay, I've almost written a collection. I can tell these stories belong together. Um, what is pulling them together? It was partly writing the second to last thing that I wrote, which was the, is the story that's maybe most directly about apologies um, that made me realize that what was an explicit question in that story was also kind of in various ways, um, mm -hmm. the more subtle or subtextual question in a lot of the work that I'd already done. And it was kind of an aha moment. And then I seeing that could um, write slash rewrite, which was kind of its own process, um, the novella and understand it as a part of this project. And so the last two things I wrote were the most explicit versions of that question. They were the novella and the short story of why won't women just say what they want, which are specifically and directly about Corrections and apologies. I'm sorry, there's a cat in my tree somewhere, not this cat. <laughs> um, and so um, it, was a, it was a process of, I, I think that was a revelation and I think that was okay because it meant the work was done before I knew what I was doing and I trusted it more for that, but it wasn't that I set out to say, I'm gonna write a book about history and apologies and 
forced all the stories into a mold, but that I'd sort of organically arrived at um, one of my obsessions. And then I could sort of think about the shape of the collection and the way that the work was in conversation rather than trying to make it something that it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. And I, I yeah, I, I really agree with that as someone who's also written collections that have that, like a kind of like, yeah, them thematic unification that it's, it's hard to imagine like setting out with that sort of macro idea and writing towards it. I feel like it would make everything really constricted. And you talking about, um, you just touched on sort of shaping the collection and I've heard you talk about, um, you know, that, that a collection sort of gives a writer to approach like a similar set of questions, but from different angles and different vantages. So we're seeing like a different perspective on the question. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's like it's to have that sort of multidimensionality. It's like, I feel like the writer needs to work with a certain amount of like, like yeah, like not knowing um, or not knowing. It's like you're, you're creating these kind of like puzzle pieces, but you don't necessarily know like the shape of the puzzle that you're, yeah, you're creating. Um, what about um, like the act of kind of putting together the collection? I mean, could you sort of walk us through what that process looked like? How did you think about order? How did you think about movement? Were there's, I was also curious to know if there were stories that um, were maybe originally sort of loosely in the lineup, but then got like the acts um, <laughs> at the last moment, or as one of my old writing teachers used to say, like they were candidates for early retirement, which is like a, <laughs> a nicer way of saying they got the acts. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I, I think a lot. Of, I do think a lot about the shape of a collection. I mean, I think ideally, the whole thing should have some kind of arc, even if the stories aren't linked, right? That you want the reader to kind of enter it in a particular place and leave, kind of considering its recurring questions, but from a different vantage point. Um, I, um, and I think I'm, I'm giving you almost verbatim the answer that you gave me when I asked you this question, <laughs> but, um, but I think that it's, um, we're just on like a loop. I'm, <laughs> long I'm so, I think that like, this should just continue. Like we should always be on to our <laughs> um, let's coordinate. Yeah, I'm, I'm for um, it. <laughs> but I, I think that, I think a lot about the way into a collection. And for me, I wanted the first story to be the one that contain the most questions that come up again later in the book. Um, and so I opened with this story that felt um, really personal, but also kind of was a way into thinking about history and grief and kind of danger and anxiety and what it means when the future you've imagined kind of disappears, all of which are things that come up in various ways and also kind of our weird relationship to the historical record. The opening story is set on a replica of the Titanic, which hosts weddings and birthday parties, um, which actually exists in not one, but two places in this country. Um, and so it was one of those sort of fascinating objects that I kept coming back to and I was like, I've got to have a story for this. And finally I found the story for it. Um, and it seemed to me that that was a way into telling the reader, like this is sort of what this collection is going to do. And then I think you immediately want to complicate that so in story two or three, things should get a little bit weirder. Um, and then I think um, you can sort of circle back to all of the questions that you've introduced in the opening section in different ways. And, and after that, I mostly just think about, I think of stories as sort of like being existing in some kind of overlapping Venn diagram, right? Where they all share space with some other story, but not the exact same space. Um, and so mostly after that, I'm just thinking about conversation, like not putting things that have the same territory kind of right next to each other, mm -hmm. also not putting things that 
next to each other that are so far apart that if you read them back to back, they'd be really jarring. Um, and, and I think about the last story as a way of kind of revisiting some of the major questions and um, in the way that you would want from an ending of a book, kind of opening them up again. So, mm -hmm. um, and in this case, the novella was because it was so much longer than everything else I felt like, and because it has a kind of dramatic ending, I felt like putting it anywhere else um, in the collection would kind of take too much energy from whatever came after. So I felt like it needed its own kind of gravity at the end of the book. Um, so that was how I decided an order. And sometimes you decide an order and then someone else reads it and is like, no, this is not the order. Nice try. Um, <laughs> but uh, that didn't happen this time. Um, so they're in the order that I put them in, um, which maybe means I'm getting better at this. Um, I, um, I'm sorry, there was a second part of your question and now it's, I've forgotten it. No, I think that that, yeah, you answered it. You answered it. Um, Oh, something got cut. No, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you think got that. I cut them so completely that they also escaped my mind. No, really, the only thing that I at one point thought belonged in this story. Peak Scorpio, if I may. They like to exist. to me. So why would we talk about it anymore? But no, I did cut one thing that was sort of loosely in the first draft, probably because it was so much shorter than everything else. And the stories range from like, of 12 to 12 pages to, to 80 pages, right? So there is a bit of a range, but this one was four pages. It was written for something that had to be in a very short form. And I thought I was gonna expand it. And partly it just didn't lend itself to expansion. Like I liked it better the way that it was. And I also felt like I'd have to expand it into a more dystopian future. Um, mm. And it, it was both, I both felt that the future that I'd already written echoed the present in more ways than I'd intended. It was still like a dramatic version of it, but um, I would have to get, it, it, would, it, would, it would have been so much rewriting that it would have become an entirely different story because I felt like yeah. I had to rewrite it so it didn't feel like I was trying to comment directly on the present. I had to rewrite it um, so that it was longer. I had to rewrite it. Um, I thought, because I thought I was gonna write two stories that were set in the in kind of surreal futures, one of which felt more dystopian and one of which felt more utopian, but then my utopian story kind of took a turn. So um, I felt like we didn't need another vision of despair in the future. Like we could just have one. You're yeah. welcome. That makes sense. Take care you. about your joy. <laughs> showing, Not much, showing, but like a little. Showing, yeah, mercy, <laughs> mercy <laughs> on, your, on your readers. Um, I, I wanted to ask, well, actually there was something that you said um, when you were talking about the, um, yeah, the replica of the Titanic, which is amazing um, that it actually exists. But uh, I, you were saying that you had that moment where you were like, this is in a, in a, in a like an incredible sort of object that I've like got to put this in a story one day. And I have a whole, um, you might also uh, like a notebook of things where I'm just like, I can't believe that this is a thing that I saw. Um, the town that I'm in, um, in Florida, there is a, a hearse that's owned by a pack of teenagers, one of whom is the undertaker's, the local undertaker's daughter. But it's like an old hearse that was given to her as a car. And now it's just, it's like a mobile party, apparently. Um, <laughs> And it's called the party hearse. <laughs> so we'll like, what else would you call it, Laura? <laughs> what else would you call it? So we just like see it around town. Um, and yeah, and it's just like filled with teenagers who are not um, ob observing social distancing. Um, <laughs> I think just, yeah, drinking alcohol and driving around in the party hearse. Um, anyway, 
I'm like for, you know, for as long as I, um, I was like, if I do one last thing with this life, <laughs> let me write a story about the party hearse. Um, but I, yeah, so we like see things like that, right? That are so striking. We're like, I have got to put this in a story, but I also have notebooks filled with, um, with things like that. And like, sometimes they turn into stories and sometimes they don't. And I'm curious for you, like, what is this sort of journey from having a moment of recognition where it's like, this is such a bizarre, horrifying, wondrous, like feat or thing. I must sort of incorporate into fiction in some way. And then that like actually happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. I also have a lot of weird notes, especially I used to in our, in our previous lives take the bus all the time. I don't drive. And so a lot of my, like, what did I just watch or hear would happen um, on the city bus? And um, often I, I would either have just like random pieces of paper or phone notes, which sometimes would be interesting because I also have like a confusing shorthand for like shopping lists. So I'm like, am I telling myself to write about something or am I telling myself to buy some object that I poorly described as often like touch or go. Um, but when I do remember what I actually meant to write in the notes, uh, I think the, the journey for me from kind of random thing to story is usually when it suddenly feels like it's in conversation with something else that doesn't seem connected because I think even though we do see things all the time that are like what just happened it's usually not enough for story right you don't just want to sort of fill in the gap for something you already saw you want to get somewhere new and so mm -hmm. usually we get to somewhere new is when suddenly that image or that object or that weird scene seems like it exists in the same world as something else that I wouldn't have thought of it as the same part of the same world as um and so I think for for like that story I mean I saw that years ago like I lived in Missouri in 2009 and that's where one of the two Titanic objects is. Um, and I was actually, I, I wasn't, I was like in the ER and I was in the ER for so long. It was just one of those things where I was like, I don't feel well, I feel like I'm gonna pass out, but I don't know what's wrong. But because I wasn't like in any obvious distress, they were just sort of like, you can just sit there for like, and I sat there for five hours and I felt like I was gonna pass out. And I was like, I think I'm just gonna leave the ER. But like, while I was there, I had read about this Titanic thing and I really wanted to go. Um, but every time I tried to go visit it, there was a hurricane, or not a hurricane, a tornado. Um, wrong weather system, but um, <laughs> there was a tornado like literally every time that I had like convinced somebody to drive me to Branson to see the Titanic. So um, it was one of those things that sort of hovered in the back of my mind for a long time. I felt like if I had seen it, I would have the story, but because I hadn't seen it, I didn't know what it connected to, um, except that it stayed in my imagination for a really long time. And um, I don't know, finally, in some way, it seemed um, connected to grief and connected to, um, it, was, it, was, it was a story that I wrote um, for a project and the image kind of got me to the story in which I was like, what can I sort of anchor this grief to? What can I anchor this sort of meditation on the body requires like a strong physical object. Um, and so I thought, okay, let's start there. And it also got me into the sort of question of memory and inheritance in a way that was sideways to the question of grief and how we remember the people that were grieving, um, but seemed to do like some symbolic work that wasn't too on the nose. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I love that idea of sort of like, right, it's like you don't want to just kind of replicate the, the thing that you saw, but also you want it to, it's like a portal into a new, a new space. Um, I had a couple of questions for you about um, the title novella, which is so amazing. So for those of you in the audience who've not yet had the pleasure um, 
of reading the novella, um, you know, the, the premise is, it's a multifaceted premise, um, but we have a narrator who is at the Institute of Public History, um, which is intended to be an antidote for, and this is the language of the story, um, the contemporary crisis of truth. And the Institute is a source of both like humor and gravity. Um, it's also a central plot engine that I think complicates and unfolds in, in really surprising um, ways. And I was just so, it's such a dynamic concept. And I was really um, interested in kind of like, how did this, how did this idea first come to you? Or if it was a collision of different things, um, like how did, how did this, how did this conceit, this sort of driving conceit take shape? Yeah, um, I think again, the conceit was something, not even necessarily something I thought I would write about, but it was sort of in the back of my mind as a running joke for a long time. Um, I had, I'd been on Metro some years ago and I overheard people saying something so wildly wrong that I was like, would it be weird if I was just like, you know, you can Google <laughs> this, like, and then, yes, it would be weird. Don't go up to strangers and like correct them on the train. But I was like, so distressed by this that for years after I was like, you know what, I would pay, I would pay tax money extra tax money every year for there to be an agency that could do that. <laughs> and of course, like also I immediately realized that agency would have like a terrifying power and I wouldn't want them to like be monitoring me. So it was um it was it was a way into I think a lot of different things. When I finally thought, oh, but this could be a story, for one, it just solved the problem that I'd been having with the book that I'd been working on for a long time. So it was about historian. Um, it was about this kind of problem of how we wrestled with history. And in the original book that I was writing with this character, um, she was she had a PhD in history and was teaching high school and was working on a history textbook. Um, and people kept trying to like nicely tell me in different ways that it wasn't that interesting to like watch this character try to write a book for the whole book. And I was like, what do you mean? It's fascinating. Um, like, we are riveting when we're writing. Riveting. Such high stakes, but um, <laughs> no one was buying it. So um, it was partly, I was like, oh, this is a way that I can turn my historian into the detective and write the detective story that I really have always wanted to write. Like I had some idea that down the road, it would sort of figure out how to write um, noir or a detective novel. And um, and suddenly I was like, oh, I can, I can sort of put her into this mystery uh, if, I, if I have this agency. But it also was a way into thinking about um, what a government agency is. You know, it was important to me that it be a government agency even that that required um like she could have worked for a tv show and that could have taken place in something that felt more similar to our actual world and done more or less similar work but i was interested in what it means to be a civil servant and what it means to be a civil servant when you have an ambivalent relationship to your country because i think that that's a question that also haunted me growing up in dc um and seeing a lot of people um, who did really good work in the public sector and also people who felt ambivalent about the work they did in the public sector and also people for whom, especially black people for whom government jobs were kind of foundational stability and a kind of foundation to power, but some of that power was traded on not doing the work they went into mm -hmm. government to do or yeah. doing work that in some way betrayed the values they'd gone in with. And so, um, so I don't know, it was a way into all of those questions too. And I, um, I thought it felt like a good home for the, a good way to externalize the question that had been too internal when I was writing about that character before. Mm. Yeah, and I love like, there's a kind of, that this premise has sort of like, it's like a like an accordion quality where it's just like, it like expands and expands and expands throughout the story in these like really surprising um, and interesting ways. And I, I was, I also like, interestingly, the story 
got revisiting that novella also got me thinking about place in your work and the way that you sort of think about like landscape and setting and um I was struck by how I mean, the majority of the novella is actually not set in DC, um, but I was struck in the in the early passages that are set in DC, like how vivid the cityscape was for me, um, where it's like there's this wonderful opening paragraph talking about the like labyrinth, brutalist buildings, and then the tourists and gentrification bakeries. And um, Danielle knows this, but I used to live in Baltimore, but taught in DC at GW. And I felt like that, like my whole walk from like the metro to campus was like, I was like, there it is. <laughs> labyrinth, brutalist buildings, gentrification bakery, tourists <laughs> milling about, um, probably in, in need of, in need of, historical correction. Um, and so you, you like, you write landscape and setting with this like wonderful um, sort of vividness and precision. Um, but a lot of the stories, so it's like this story, your novella were really, you know, anchored in DC and then for various reasons, um, we move on to Wisconsin. And I, I was thinking about like, how in a lot of these stories, characters are kind of passing through landscapes or they're newly arrived in landscapes. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, attention to place and setting, um, but it's often setting as kind of liminal. Um, and I was, yeah, I just was curious to know, like, I, you know, I know like, like me, you have moved to various places um, for jobs and, and other things. And, uh, yeah, I was just so curious to hear your thoughts on sort of like how you thought about place in this collection and the writing of place. Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, actually not, not even for like forever, one of my great writerly envies is people who can really know a landscape, right? People who like have a town that they're from or a place that they have lived all of their lives and can tell you exactly what changed from year to year and have that kind of historical memory that makes its way into description. Um, I don't have that for any place. Like, you know, I can move every couple of years and I don't think you can fake that. You know, you can try, um, but someone will catch you. And I think it made me really nervous early in my writing career not to have that because I felt like my sense of place was sort of artificial or frivolous and someone would catch me in it. And so I would in some ways overcompensate for that by trying to do a lot of research. Like I, I Google map walked through so many towns in my first collection. Um, and I think that as I've gotten Old. And of course, it's a balance because also when you're pasting on a landscape, you have to make sure you're not pasting it over the characterization of human drama that made your story interesting in the first place. And so I think that's another like mistake you often make early in writing, is that you realize your story doesn't have enough physical grounding, and so you just start inserting physical descriptions into the middle of like intense emotional scenes or places where the interiority is more interesting than the exteriority, or places where it just doesn't make sense or in the wrong voice. And so. Um, through some trial and error, <laughs> what I realized is that I do pay attention to places, but but I pay attention to places in the way you pay attention to places when you leave and arrive a lot. Um, and that's okay. And that's the kind of writing that like also can make you feel like you see the landscape. And so how familiar something seems um, versus the difference between what you expected to find and what you actually found like those are the kinds of descriptions that I think I'm most comfortable with as a writer. Um, not even necessarily always the places that I've been, but the sort of sense of um, what did I imagine would be here and then what did I actually find or what did I remember being here and what's actually still here now? Um, and did it change or was my memory wrong? And those kinds of questions that tie the landscape to character are really interesting to me. 
I also think of setting as related to time. And you and I have talked a couple of times about time in short fiction and time in short fiction often as an act of compression, right? Where what you're trying to get is those moments of intensity where someone's existing in a lot of different timeframes at once. So something is happening in the present. We also have the grounding of some kind of memory or backstory. We also have some suggestion of the future, whether it's an actual flash forward or just the suggestion that we're supposed to look to the future because that's why we're being asked to pay attention to this moment. Um, and I think places can do that, right? Places can be this really concrete way of registering the passage of time or thinking about time because places gesture toward what they are going to be, right? There's some suggestion of what's gonna happen. Like you could look at a block and, and make some sort of conjecture about what's happening in the next 10 years just based on kind of what it looks like is coming. Um, you can also sort of have a specific memory of a place that exists at the same time that you're standing in the place as it is. And so I think often places for me is a way to think about time, which is another way to get those sort of transitory descriptions in, or those descriptions that feel like this is what it looks like now, but it feels in some way temporary. Yeah, yeah, that is a really incredible answer. Um, and I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about time again. <laughs> I cheated. I'm sorry. You cheated. Yeah, you like so did the short story compression where you merged like two, two <laughs> into one, but it was super brilliant. Um, I think I'll ask you, I know we're going to try and go to audience questions around 740. So audience members, pre prepare, start preparing yourselves now. Um, but I think I'll ask you two more questions. Um, shifting like slightly more towards um, the, yeah, the, the shifting away from craft and more towards the, the writer's life a little bit. Um, in um, so the New York Times, this really wonderful profile of you. And you had a, a, a line in there that I was struck by and that I thought was also like you were communicating something really valuable. Um, you said working in, this, in the story form has in some ways given me what I wanted, which was not necessarily a flashy career, but a sustainable one. Um, and I thought that that like, I've had so many conversations with like graduate students who are like, if my debut, um, you know, and I mean, your debut is like heralded and like and beloved and it is an amazing, also an amazing story collection. Um, but there's this sense that like, if my debut does not like win the Pulitzer and make a million dollars and basically like take over the world, um, I will I will have failed. I'm <laughs> just always sort of like, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so many thoughts, but I, yeah, I mean, I think like, I mean, what, I understood that line to be is that is that idea of like a sustainable career is that a career that in some ways kind of like supports our ability to continue to like do the work that we want to do for the for like the long haul. Um, but I just wondered, um, you know, because it was like a line in bigger profile. Could you like expand on that um, a little bit? Because I felt like you were yeah you were touching on something really valuable there. Yeah, um, I think that for me it was. Partly it was in response to the question that I was asked, which is a night, you know, it was asked more nicely than this, but essentially like, do you ever feel like marginalized because you work in like a lesser form or, or is there some variation of that? And I think that um and then I don't, in fact, I, mean, I don't know, who knows? You only know the life we're having, right? So there might be some other life in which I wrote a debut novel and am now a millionaire. Um, and my cats have an even bigger tree to destroy. Um, but in this life, I think what I was trying to get it is I actually think that in some ways having a story collection 
um, gave me a decade of being continuing to be relevant while I worked on the next thing. You know, I, I think um, it because we've made short stories in various ways, um, kind of the academic form of creative writing that, you know, that book got taught, like it never hit a bestseller list, but at a certain point, the sales were like steady every year because the same number of people were teaching and assigning it and people would sort of rediscover it and gift it to their parents or bring it to their book club or, or whatever. And so it had a kind of long life. And I think sometimes people have a really flashy debut and it's not that there's anything wrong with the book, it's just in the book kind of disappears. Um, and maybe the book comes back into the conversation when they do the next thing, but maybe it doesn't just because like we lose focus of things sometimes. And so I think um, because the story form has this kind of academic context that I've spent 10 years kind of on tour for the first book that I never entirely went, went away from appearing in people's lives. And so um, that gave me the space to make the second thing that I published, the thing that I wanted because I didn't feel like I urgently need to publish something. Also because it was stories, I could publish something like every couple of years, like, all right, she still exists. Um, and I didn't feel like I had to rush what I was working on or try to put together some books so that people would remember that I existed. I felt like um, it was able to continue having a life as a writer, not necessarily um, like some life of fame and glamor, but a life in which people remembered that I existed and knew my work and sort of had some sense of what the next thing I was doing was it was or was going to be. Um, and it could get done when it could get done. And that, um, I don't know, that felt comfortable to me. It felt, um, it felt like a way to give myself the space to work without feeling some intense pressure um, toward speed. Yeah, I feel like actually what you're speaking to, one of the like unsung, um, I've heard those yeah, questions too. They're like, oh, more <laughs> short stories. Why exactly? <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't seem particularly yeah lucrative um but but I do think that you're really right about that that short story collections often do have like longer lives in a way um because they are I mean the collection is and the story is kind of what is is taught more um than the novel and it's like like now I mean I've every I mean which makes sense because I published a collection this year but it's like even before that the majority of the class visits I, I would do would be for story collections and would not be for yeah would not would not be for novels so I think yeah that is true that that, that it, they have a they have like kind of can have a longer um a longer tail in that way I also think they're somehow like more compatible like the act of writing stories is more compatible with just being like a person in the world with a life and other concerns and that they can you know, they, they do demand the sustained attention at, and, and immersion at a certain point, but they can be written sort of in fits and starts and in fragments. And um, it feels like a thing that you can do while you're living. And I know there are people who write novels that are able to work in that way too, but I am like not, I feel like I need to be like in a yeah, I mean, the other something. reason I think yeah. this is a story collection and not a novel is that I was working on it while my mother was dying. And, you know, there were years I didn't write anything at all. And there were um, there were years when I was like, OK, I've got this window kind of between crises um, where I can get like two days of writing. in. so in some ways, I think that if you work on a novel for two days, it's almost like negative time. If you can't come back to it, like you've almost cost yourself time because it's going to take you that long to figure out what you did when you come back to it later. 
Um, but you can you can loosely draft a short story in some time in, in, in that time. And then when you come back to it, like a couple months later, and you have another two days, you can sort yeah. of see what it is. And so it'll take a long time to write a story that way, but you're not actually like working backwards, which is what I think it feels like to me, at least to write a longer project um, in kind of tiny windows. Yeah, I, I think that is true. Um, so my last question for you before we go to the audience questions, I just, I wanted to ask like, are there stories by other writers that are sort of especially um, like important or heart held um, for you that you would kind of like revisit or go back to when you were working on the Office of Historical Corrections? Huh. I don't know that I went back to anything specifically while I was working on this book, but there are stories that I read all the time or that I teach all the time. I mean, I think the stories, I love Edward P. Jones's The First Day especially because again, it's so compressed and it does so much in short, such a short space. And as somebody who tends to run long, sometimes I reread that story when I'm like, okay, but what do I actually need? Because that story covers so much time, it, it flashes into the future. It is focused on one day, but it's also focused on so much more than that. And it's all kind of in there. So that's a story that I come back to a lot when I'm like trying to work against my instincts for expansion and remember like what's so beautiful about compression. Um, I also come back a lot to Alice Munro's How I Met My Husband, which is a story that kind of um, also has that sort of multi, there, there are kind of two planes of time happening in the story, and um, which is something I think of a lot, kind of where is the story looking back from, and what's the difference between the story being told as it happened and the story being told with some distance, and can I get both of those into the structure of the story somehow? Um, I think I, um, in terms of collections, I, I really love um, Asali Solomon's Get Down. Um, I really love your your new book. Um, I really love a lot of books that just sort of feel like they, they have that movement. Um, Lauren Groff's uh, collection, Delicate Edible Birds, like books that just feel like um, I can sort of see what the work is doing and also I'm surprised every story. And so sometimes when I'm thinking about order, I will go back and look at some of my favorite collections and think about like, how does this move? Because you don't always pay attention to it as a reader on first read. Um, but, I, but I do go back and just look at the table of contents of some of my favorite collections and feel like, okay, but how did we get there? Um, awesome. Thank you so, so much for these beautiful and generous answers. Um, okay, it is time for, for questions from, um, from other people, I see we have um, two. And the first one is about book design. Um, both of your book covers are wonderful. We have the train tracks and fascist sheep in Laura's and in Danielle's, yours feels like a marked up government document. Authors don't always have much agency when it comes to covers, depending on the publisher. Could you both talk about the design experience? Yeah, I'm curious, are you involved at all in your cover design, Laura? I, so I have been asked, I, in the past I was asked to send um, a, a anything that I was sort of interested in and then a, a list of things that were like hard stop no's for me. Um, I, I didn't really have a lot of hard stop no's. I mean, I think just because some of the stories are set in Florida, I'm always just like, no, like palm trees, you know, I know like cliched tropical type stuff. Um, but otherwise it was pretty open. And I knew that designer Nakim who did my cover and um, 
and who's like, and, and is amazing. Um, and so I really trusted her. Um, but yeah, I remember it was the only cover that she did that I saw. And I remember opening the file on my computer because the cover is like, it's a little weird. Um, and, and I sort of like gasped and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I love it. It's so weird. Is it too weird? Like maybe. And then we kind of collectively decided that it was just the right amount of weird. Um, and there were some minor revisions, like like um, adjusting. Uh, we were going for like a like a Black Mirror, Stranger Things vibe. And I think that there were some things about like the font color that pushed it like a little bit more towards like a Stranger Things '80s vibe um, than we had intended. So there was some sort of like adjustments in terms of like um the proportions and the images and the font but the you know but but that was that was always the cover um and I yeah and I do really love it so I had I in I guess minimal input but only because not did such an amazing job right from the jump yeah no one's ever asked me for ideas probably because they're afraid I'd have many of them <laughs> which I actually don't know that I would like I'm not um I'm not super good at visual stuff, but no, I didn't see the cover until it was done. Um, and I think there were some, like, there must have been other sample covers that never got sent to me because there was a while um, that it seemed to be like an in-house conversation for longer than usual. And, but when I finally saw the cover, I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. And I think it had already been through all of the sort of workshopping that whatever had happened to, um, that was sort of holding it up for a little bit. Um, so yeah, I kind of gasped with delight and was like, this is wonderful. And um, I had no notes. It also got a, a second cover because it's um, coming out in the UK in March with a different publisher. Um, and so again, it's a completely different concept. Um, and I really like the concept. I did have like a slight note on the first cover and then um, and then they sent me a, a revision that accounted for those notes and um, I really liked it. So yeah, I usually, I don't, I don't have any say in design ahead of time. Um, I think, um, you can sort of suggest if you object to something is my understanding um, and usually um, the publisher wants you to be somewhat happy with the cover and we'll take that into consideration. Um, okay, so this is a kind of process question. How has the disruption to each of your normal routines with pandemic life affected your writing process and creative inspiration? Has anything that happened this year made you rethink your process or obsessions? <laughs> I mean, I've read that my entire life, but um, but also I mean, the thing about the pandemic is like, even if you felt like you made all the wrong choices, you can't do anything about them because you can't leave your house and like socialize <laughs> okay. people. So like, it's too late. Um, it's too late for um, for whatever other choices I was supposed to have made. Um, but I I don't think that um, I mean I don't think it's but some people are like it's just been a super productive year for writing because I'm alone all the time and I was like I'm. I'm alone all the time, most of the time, which I realize is like a, a privilege of, of having a kind of writing life in the first place. But I need that not being alone time to like have something to write about, you know? So I don't think the deprivation of like social time and community has been particularly good for my writing. Um, it's also just, you know, there have been moments, and I think that there have been moments, like a lot of those kinds of moments in the last decade where you're like, why am I writing a book in a world that's not going to be publishing books in two years. Like in two years, we're all going to be like fending for scraps as the ice caps melt. So what am I writing anything for? Um, and I think that like a moment of intense crisis, um, you know, with 
and, and all of the sort of grief and all of the sort of coming economic crisis that's gonna follow, even if we can sort of address the immediate crisis um, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of despair and it makes it difficult to imagine a future and writing is fundamentally, I think always an act of imagining the future. Um, so it's been harder to get to that place where I can imagine the future, right? I can imagine the future world that I'm in some indirect way speaking to when I sit down to write. Um, and, uh, and I think I've also just given myself permission to do that. I don't, I don't even need a pandemic to say that like, I don't, I don't owe the world productivity, right? I owe the world the best work that I can do and it'll get done when it gets done. Um, there are enough books. Like what I realized as I continue to sort of buy, buy books throughout the pandemic is that like, I will probably almost certainly never even read all of the books that I already want to read and own, let alone all of the books that are yet to be written, let alone the books that I haven't even discovered yet. So there's no urgency for me to create a book, right? There's urgency for me to know what I'm trying to say and for me to get back to a place where I can believe in the future. And so that's what I've been working on. Um, when I don't feel like I have it in me to write, I'm trying to go back to things that make me believe in the future or make me believe in at least fighting for a version of the future in which we're still reading books. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful answer. I mean, I think that that, I, I love that idea of, of writing being sort of fundamentally about imagining the future. Um, yeah, and it's been like not a super productive year for me. And I, I, I think, um, I think as someone who like does tend to write a lot and work a lot, I, I think the, the sort of pandemic, um, and, right. And that idea that of not owing the world productivity definitely like invited me to sort of investigate and in some ways reimagine my like relationship to productivity and like what it, like what it means. Um, and, and what is, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the distinction between like, you know, working because you're, 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 it's in service of whether a real or imagined future that you believe in or need to believe in versus just being like fucked up by capitalism is like a, <laughs> a conversation I've had with myself in a number of times, um, a number of times this year. Um, but I, I'm in a sort of unusual position where for, for various reasons that I will not get into now, um, I've been in my hometown in Florida for, with the party hearts, um, since March and I'll be here until the summer of 2021. And I just keep thinking like, this is, uh, it was a completely unprecedented immersion in a place that I know super well, but haven't lived in, in a really long time, a place that's changing in all kinds of ways, including like visible evidence of climate change. And I just feel like, I feel like it, it's like to live, is like it here is like an elegy, you know? And I know the time won't last forever um, in that I'll eventually like have to go back to a job that won't be done remotely anymore. And I think it's like, I'm just really trying to be sort of like in time and in space and like whatever happens there is what happens. Um, okay, I am just, I'm going just in order of the questions. Um, so I think the next one was from Melissa, um, who is asking, your book title has uncanny timing with respect to the recent discoveries of the founder and namesake of your employer, JHU. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think my, my first thought was disappointment and that genuinely, I sort of, even though you, you expect everything everything of a certain age to be somehow marked by racism in this country. It was actually like, 
a relief when I when I came to interview for the job and Googled like who was Johns Hopkins to be like, oh, he wasn't a bad guy. And so there was like a slight pang of like, oh, of course he was. Like, of course that was too good to be true. It was also kind of, and I haven't maybe read all of the details of the story or maybe they haven't all been revealed yet. So I could have this wrong, but my understanding is that this whole Johns Hopkins was an abolitionist kind of narrative seems to have like been invented in the last century and like basically came from a pamphlet that nobody fact-checked, which is kind of amazing that like this whole mythology that the university is sort of very invested in um, came from like bad information that somehow was in all these years, nobody questioned. I mean, not nobody questioned, but nobody with the authority to like say, maybe we shouldn't put this on all of our paraphernalia um, questioned. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of amazing to me um, that we could sort of get this far into history with the verifiable records having been there the whole time and only now be sort of publicly admitting not just like oh we know this thing about this person but that the entire narrative that we've been saying about this person for like a hundred years now um is false um is, is somehow like a a damage control narrative that was applied after the fact um so yeah i don't i don't know it'll be interesting to see what becomes of that it'll be interesting to see like how the university reckons with that information and in what way um it does or doesn't kind of um, change the university's other narrative of having been this benevolent presence in the city in other ways that I think also maybe wouldn't stand up to a fact check. So I think we have time for one more question. Um, and I think this one um, from, yeah, from Carla will be, a good one to end on. Um, this conversation speaks to the writer in many of us. Can you talk candidly about the element of surprise in your work and what makes for creating characters where the reader, um, excuse me, and what makes for creating complex characters where the reader discovers then rediscovers a character all over again? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, when I'm thinking about characterization, I do try to build a story, even though I'm very much interested in the structural world and I'm interested as much in the things we don't have agency about as the things that we are. I do think for me, the two ways that I think about complexity are one, creating spaces where the character can make choices. Um, so if I feel kind of stuck in a story, I try to force a character into, into a decision because then I can sort of learn something about them. And if it works, I can leave it on the page so the reader can learn something about them. And I think the way that I create characters who I'm not sure what they'll do when presented with a decision is to think about um, the contrast between someone's interior life and someone's exterior life. And I think I think about that as a kind of human thing. And then I think about that in relation to all the other characters in the story, both in terms of um, who has the power in a particular relationship, whether it's, um, whether that's about just kind of how the character responds to another person or whether that's about some structural reality who, who can make another character perform for them, right? Um, in whose presence is our sense of performance heightened and our interior self silenced more? And in whose presence is our interior self more present um, and our performative self kind of tapped down? And I think the interesting question about performance is at what point does your performance of yourself in the world just become yourself in the world, right? That's always a kind of interesting space. But for me, complexity and surprise are in knowing where those gaps are, right? Knowing when someone is saying something they don't mean or knowing when someone is doing something 
that's not actually what they want to do and, and being able to understand the motivation for why, being able to understand what version of themselves a character is presenting to the world um, and where that's different from how they actually feel. Um, okay, we had instructions to end at eight and um, my clock says we're nearly there. So I think that that would be, um, yeah, an awesome place. No, no, but end. you still have time to answer the question, Laura. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't. I had, I thought that was just for you. I had completely let let myself off the hook uh, for for yeah for that one. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah, I'll turn it into um, sing for three minutes. So I think you should yeah. take the question. Um, I, yeah. I mean, I think, I think for me, discovering sort of well, I think for me, complexity and just and um and surprise are discovered in characters, which is to say they, they need to, in some ways, sort of surprise me before they can bring surprise to the story. I always think of this um, thing that uh, like Truman Capote said about Jack Kerouac, whose work he did not in any way admire, <laughs> um, but about on the road, he said, that's not typing, or that's not writing, that's just typing. Um, and I feel like that it stayed with me so much because I feel like that there are periods of where drafting feels like that, you know? It's like, I don't feel like I'm writing and that I'm making something in a meaningful way. I, I do feel like I'm typing, um, but I also feel like I, I often need to kind of type my way into the writing. Um, and I think that, yeah, when characters begin to do things that surprise me, startle me, sometimes like appall me or unsettle me a little bit where I'm like, oh, I cannot believe that that came out of my very own brain. Um, that's when I know, when they make me uncomfortable even. Um, I think that that's when I know that I'm onto something. Um, and, and it's those moments that I really try and follow in, in drafts to sort of say, okay, you know, keep going down that path and, and see, yeah, and see, and see what's there. Um, I also think like in some ways, I, I know in our, um, I think it was our last event that we talked some about first person narration and I, it's, and I write a lot in the first person. So I think also with a first person narrator, so often like narrator and story are almost oppositional forces where the kind of performance of first person is like here, you know, it's the characters animated by dual, dual and contradictory impulses. Like here is, here are all of the things that I am so dying to tell you, right? That are just pouring forth. And then there's also this sort of dimension of like material and experience that I, I very much don't want to share, don't want to examine, don't want to look at, don't want to engage. And sort of this, the story's job is to move that character in some way, um, whether it be directly or indirectly in, into that matter that they very much don't want to engage. And so I think about that a lot, like how how can a character, the, the character's desired trajectory and the necessary trajectory of the story sort of productively like disagree with one another um, in a way that leads to, yeah, both com complexity and surprise. Um, yeah, 
and now I think it is like exactly eight. So we don't, we, we don't have to sing. <laughs> we don't have to sing. I was practicing total eclipse of the heart yesterday, but. Yes, but I, 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 I would have been ready. Um, thank <laughs> you so much to Enik Pratt um, and City Lit for hosting us. Um, it, and get, you should get that this short story collections make the perfect holiday gift. Um, if you want for, someone to be very depressed for the new year, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. For, yes, for the readers in your yeah, for the for the readers in your life, it's a great gift for friends, enemies, whatever. Um, but yeah, this is a um, both of Danielle's um, collections are extraordinary. This is one of the best short story collections I've read in a really really long time, and yeah, I highly recommend getting a copy um, for yourself and. Um, yeah, and even though I mean, we didn't plan it this way, I feel like our books are in some strange way also in conversation as we have been a lot this year. So you should throw in Laura's book, which is an, an amazing collection. Um, and then you'll have a, a built-in book club discussion for the next time you see that person. Yes, that's, that's true. Um, <laughs> all right, I think, am I supposed to end the Zoom? Do I have that, do I have that awesome power? I think so. I think that was what we agreed on. Um, yep. Yes. Thank you, Laura. You have ended the Zoom. I'm going to end on the technology side. Okay. Uh, but I'll now that I turned on my mic, I'll, I'll turn on my camera. But yeah, thank you so much. Um, Danielle and Laura, like, I mean, both of them said their books are incredible. Um, you might be sad, but you'll also laugh a lot, which I think <laughs> is like, you know, the perfect way to spend your time. That is a true 2020 vibe. Um, so thank you. <laughs> thank you everyone for joining us this evening and we hope you have, you know, a great rest of your week and you stay safe and take care. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.